0: Humanity in healthcare is is seeing and being seen and hearing and being heard and healing and being healed.
1: More human healthcare means I know what matters to my patients, not just what's the matter with them. And
0: more human healthcare means extending kindness, compassion and fair treatment regardless of my faith, nationality and race. Remembering that underneath it all, we're all human. More human health means remembering everyone involved is human. As staff,
2: it would mean the umbrella of safety and compassion is extended to me. As a patient, it would mean not to be
1: unfavourably cared for because of who I am. More
0: human health care means a warm and listening face, an attitude of respect, and an honest and open response.
1: Humanised healthcare for me is more than just dressing my wounds, it's holding my hand, looking into my eyes, asking how I feel. It's checking that I'm not scared.
0: Treating me like a human being. Welcome to the Humanising Healthcare podcast series from the Point of Care Foundation. Today's episode asks the question, why is medicine so medical? And explores ideas around humanising care from the perspective of people with a long-term health condition. I'm Beth Fitzsimons and I'm Chief Executive of the Point of Care Foundation. And today I'd like to welcome Sherelle Augustine, Nadia Willis and Sandra Jayakodi They'll introduce themselves and tell their own stories, but the common thread that links them is a long experience of treatment and care from the health system. They're going to talk about what a more human healthcare system would look like from their point of view as people with long-term health conditions. Sherelle, Naudia and Sandra, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. You're very welcome.
1: Okay, so um, my name is um, Naudia Willis. I am, I have sickle cell disease. Um, I currently am in work and I work for um, the NHS. I'm a service manager.
3: Hi, um, my name is Sandra Jaikodi. I live in London and I used to work as a solicitor before. Uh, but due to my long-term mental health conditions, I had to leave my profession. And now I'm actively involved in patient and public involvement and engagement in research, uh, quality improvement, healthcare uh, service design, and also training. Uh,
2: yeah, I would say I'm Sherelle, 34. I also have sickle cell, living with sickle cell, pretty much been in that hospital all my entire life <laughs> and um, I'm currently employed by Imperial College slash ARC Northwest London and obviously on the side I do you know we do have our charity Broken Silence and we do a lot of well at the moment we do a lot of behind the scenes raising awareness of sickle cell and just trying to make a difference
0: in you know
2: the healthcare systems and the way that we're treated.
0: So I mean you've, you've all worked with us In the past, and you know the sort of strapline of the Point of Care Foundation is the mission is to humanise healthcare. And if if I sort of say that to you, as as a person who's got a long term condition, what what do what would you interpret that as meaning
1: to you? What does a human healthcare system feel like, look like? For me, I will say patient involvement, patient awareness patient and also clinician working together those are like a few of the stuff that come to mind what what about you cheryl does it mean the same sort of thing to you as well
2: those things definitely but also just seeing me as a person like not just a number or not just a statistic or trying to understand you know because a lot of the time they generalize you by your health your health um, condition or something like that whereas no two people are the same and they don't react the same and um sometimes you need to understand where the person's coming from to be able to give them advice and to change their you know to help them have the best holistic care so not just their care in hospital but how they go back home and look after themselves and just um being empowered I think a lot of the time you're made sometimes you're made to feel small in your decisions like you're not doing the best thing for your health or for your well-being and instead of it being more of a two-way conversation and understanding both sides and realizing that I'm actually intelligent enough I've got a profession to understand the science and the research and everything behind things as well
3: it's sometimes that's missing I find
0: and what about you Sandra
3: Me. Um, I agree totally with what uh, Cheryl and Nadia has said, and also to add on to that, it's also about when you talk about human care, it's about person-centered care, and we have heard about this terminology for a long time, and that means when you're when you're caring for someone, especially with long-term health conditions, you need to look at like what Cheryl said, you have to look at their whole environment you know, uh, what is it that matters to them? What is it that they need to help them recover? And It's just not the clinicians or the experts telling you this is what you need to do, but also hearing from them, what is it that they want that they can do to help with their own recovery as well? So I think that conversation kind of is lost in the process and that conversation is important. And that conversation can only come about if you, if you actually empower the patients to do that. For instance, your, your cultural background, your beliefs might not allow you to kind of question certain professions or clinicians whom you think they are the experts, so, and you would be fearful. But I think we need to break that culture and, and empower uh, the patients to to able to question anything that comes to mind without Worrying or having, being frightened or being feel, or oh, like what Cheryl mentioned, you know, i um, might be just a small person, and so what would I contribute? You know, just to break all those barriers and give that power to the patients for their own recovery.
0: C- can you think of an ex- <laughs> example in your own background where someone's done, you know, has treated you in a way, and it's and it would be the epitome of what was a human interaction, a good, a good positive. Healthcare interaction.
3: When I was um, laid off my job because of my poor health, and you're lost, and suddenly you have no income. You know, someone who has been um, um, working and earning well, and have to leave the profession because of for health reasons. That means I, and you know, I became poorer because of my health. Mm. And I didn't know at that time what help I could access or what was it there for me. And um, my healthcare worker, she was very, very helpful. And she came and told me, look, these are the things that you can access now because you're not working anymore and you've got a long-term mental health condition. And if she didn't, have that conversation with me and ask me questions, I think I would have just left the hospital without knowing what I'm going to do next. Yeah. So although to me it was like, oh, my God, what is she suggesting? Have I to go on benefits now? She was having a conversation with me, and in a way that was really kind of um, really, really helpful. Yeah.
0: It sounds like she cared about you as
1: a person. I think for me um this a few people will come to mind in terms of healthcare one of them being my my GP we have also the specialist sickle, sickle cell nurse that we Cheryl would know this one I'm talking about that we had um she was absolutely fantastic and we've had a few doctors well a couple of doctors sickle cell consultants that we and I again would agree that we thought that were fantastic because they they listened to you. You felt that like you were having a one-to-one service with them. Like I had a um, sickle consultant who, if I missed an appointment, would ring me and say, why am I not here sitting in front of her? And that, you know, like to even know your patient like that, for me, is is something special. Like to even pick, to, to be so bothered to pick up the phone and say, I'm sorry, you were supposed to be here because at the the time I was a teenager and there's certain stuff that I didn't want to do. And I didn't, in terms of a hospital appointment, sometimes I'd be like, oh, it's not that important. I'm not. But with her having that, you know, having that one-to-one connection and, and conversation, she will know to pick up the phone and say, well, you know, you're meant to be here. Why are you not here? Like, this is about your health. And so it felt like a it felt like you was being cared for and looked after correctly and there's like they're genuinely care for you. There's been a few times when I had to go and see my GP and he's very much like, well, he makes me feel like, well, you know more about your illness than I do. You're, you know, so what works for you? Like you would ask, what okay, can So what tablets do you want? What works for you? What takes away the pain? Stuff like that. So um for me that's been like that's very helpful. Like those are the ones that I have you know positivity thing to say about
2: one one thing that really sticks out to me and why I am how I am today is was um Dane Professor Sally Davis because she was the one of the, mm-hmm. consultants, the mentioned, and uh, she was looking after me from birth to certain age and she never used to just speak to my parents she would always speak to me as well so it wasn't like I was insignificant, or wasn't part of the conversation, or I was being talked about. It was always directed to me, explaining in a way that I could understand, no matter what age I was, and that really made me more um, have more control about my condition, just from my understanding of my condition. And she was very honest as well. It wasn't no like um, like bubble wrapping. It was like if you don't do this, you'll die. It was very straight to the point. And caring at the same time, and it wasn't like I was enough. So for her, it was like she would know my case. I bet if I met her now, she would still remember mm-hmm. my condition. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And that's very rare, and I haven't seen her for like a couple of decades now. I'm sure. And um, that really made a difference to how I was raised because I, well, I had my mum enforcing that, at, 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 you know, at home. But I also had a consultant that spoke to me and empowered me to mm-hmm. understand my condition, my limit like not my limitations, but how I could be limited by or impacted by my condition or how my decisions impacted my life rather than you should just do this and that was it. It was always a conversation, it was always an explanation, it was always tailored to just me. And, and I think you just
1: generally felt cared for,
2: like a yeah, genuine care. You like, felt it makes you feel accountable to, for them to, the, to them as well. Exactly. It's not just like, oh, it's, they're just, I'm just a nobody to them. You feel, mm. when you don't do what you're supposed to do, you feel bad to say it, yeah. which isn't what they were intending, but because they care so much, it's like an extension of your family.
3: Mm. I I also remember when I was receiving home treatment care and one of the um, social worker would, um, would come around to the house and uh, I remember at one point when I was finishing my, when the home treatment uh, care ended I was telling her like do you know what you have been so helpful you have been so kind you are the best person and I think I was like going on and on praising her I it was simply because she for some reason came across as a person who was more proactive she was not waiting for me because uh, bearing in mind at that time or that frame of mind that I was in I was not able to understand anyone I was not able to comprehend anything but for her to sit down and actually take me through the whole process and everything changed my life totally changed as a result of my long-term diagnosis she took me through like practically holding my hand and you know what what are the things that I need to look out for including my daughter you know what kind of support that she can get and so it was it it was I think if those two people were not in my life and if they were not proactive to tell me, I would have faced more struggles with my illness.
0: It does sound like there's a real common thread of being held in mind by people. And that's what's been really special, isn't it? I suppose one of the questions I want to ask you really is most people go into healthcare with the best of intentions. So what do you think gets in the way of them? doing their best for patients in in, in a more humanised way? I I personally think because sometimes,
2: you know how patients always don't want to be the last to know. I think sometimes a lot of frontline staff are the last to know about things going on in their own hospital. They always say, many times I've heard nurses say that, you know, we always know what's going to happen before they do. And Mm -hmm. then there's always a lot of policy and procedure changes um and i think time time restrictions around that and usually the people putting these policies in place have never actually been on the front line so they don't Mm -hmm. know how it works so they just implement these things that they don't know if it works or not and they don't like review it or anything like that so it just puts a lot of strain and extra paperwork which is some of it can be seen as unnecessary um and then there's the other element of sometimes people have experienced a a certain amount of patients that are negative towards them or have a negative mindset or act negatively and then they kind of link it to the condition or they have fellow staff members tell them "Oh, people with this condition are quite difficult and and it just kind of changes their mindset for a set of people, kind of like a stigma on them people.
3: It could also be that they're really overworked and uh, and uh, also including, you know, we talk about now a lot about this human care, patient-centered care, uh, humanizing treatment. But when they were when they were qualifying, when they became healthcare professionals, at the time that they were receiving their training, how much of this was in their uh, training? You know? So they have embarked on a journey with that, which was the very old system of how we provide care. And now as we evolve, we keep looking at the new ways of treating uh, patients and caring for patients. So how much of this new way of treating or caring has been in, in, or kind of inputted into the existing staffs? You know? What do they know about it? The, the other thing that I think, um, especially like what Cheryl said was, you know, when you have new guidelines and policies, Guidelines and policies are always guidelines and policies. Are they enforceable if they they do not follow what happens to to that? I can give you an example um, with mental health. There's a big talk about physical health uh, for patients with mental illness where they find that there's a disparity and also they find that people with Long term mental health conditions, life expectancy can be reduced by 20 years. So, the government is putting the the NHS is putting a lot of money into improving the physical health assessment of patients, uh, inpatients, and also in the community. So, there have been guidelines, there have been policies, but still, till today, we look at it, it's not really happening to the standard that is expected to happen. So, there are policies set in place, trainings have been given to the staffs. So, why is it still not happening?
0: What do you think can be done about these sorts of problems, the gap between what's supposed to happen and what actually happens?
3: There has to be some sort of accountability. Who is responsible yeah. for if this is not being carried out?
1: Like, What, what consequences are there um, when yeah. these are not being done, when um, these gaps are not being filled? Do you, um, you know, Sandra said, do you just leave it and how how do you fill these gaps so if there's no consequences then people don't really take stuff seriously enough
3: mm-hmm.
1: like if there's no like you know if you don't have to if account for anything you, you know people generally think that oh you know it's a tick box exercise like whether it's done or not it's it's one of those tick box exercise there's no there's no consequences for it so really and truly what's what's the point
0: do think it's just because you know the, these aspects are just not a top enough priority for the, for leaders? Say is that is that what's behind it?
3: Whether it is priority or not, it's not. What matters is what is important for the patient. Mm. What is important for the patient? For the patient, both the mental and physical health is important. You know, mm. one fits on the other. So these are priorities and these priorities are being talked about every day you know this you you see conferences you see newsletters you see publications you see research you see health policies and guidelines from nhs and nice guidelines so why is this people are still not feeling it as this important why is it not important why are they ignoring it they're not they're ignoring it because there's no accountability yeah
1: it's just like a, for an example like when I go into A&E for you know a crisis and over and over again my sickle protocols just been ignored but what is the consequences of that protocol being ignored like even though for me if for you for them ignoring it the consequences for me is is you know crucial because I end up in high dependency and stuff like that, you know. My treatment time takes longer, my recovery time takes longer. But from the time I go into A&E, what what is the consequence of them ignoring my sickle protocol, even though I'm flashing it in their face?
3: But we cannot, we, uh, this to, to me is just like, I cannot put this as a blanket statement that this is what is happening. There is good and there is bad. Of course. Of you course. know, so we need to take it in equal proportion. We cannot assume everyone is that, no. But when things don't happen, there's a reason why it doesn't
2: happen. Yeah. I think I guess, as well, there's an element of not only consequence, but reward, because I know that they have things like the sequence. So if certain people implement certain, um, I guess it's, it's changes or policies or get, hit certain targets, there's a sequence funding that they get and that motivates people in a different way. So it's like you've got you've got accountability, but you've also got to make them feel like, well, what am I getting from it? Because I feel like um, a lot of the time, I guess, if they're just bombarded with extra extra work to do, and these things fall through the gaps, and they're just like, okay, whatever. But sometimes it's nice to be told, oh, you're doing a good job, and this is what you get for doing a good job.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, we've got to we all like to be told when we're doing a good job, don't we?
2: Yeah, and you, you get that less than you do getting told when you haven't done. Because so yeah. half the time you can do 98% of your job correct, and then the one time you mess up, you know, they come down on you like mm-hmm. a ton of bricks, like you've never done anything good. So most people are used to getting that negative
0: feedback rather than positive feedback. Yeah, really important point. So last one from me, really, which is really just to think about if you had a magic wand and you could just fix a couple of things that would make your experience better what what would it be
1: for me I think it's this is the first thing that came to my head really um and I think it's because um I I use this system a lot for me I'll I'll, I think I'll start with A&E because my journey begins in A and E, when I'm being brought in by the ambulance, like generally I don't have a, a problem being brought in by the ambulance. But as soon as I hit A and E, that's where my my journey sort of messes up a bit. And I can always tell what kind of stay I'm going to have by how I'm treated in A and E, going then going forward onto the wards. So um, that's the first thing that came to my head. I'll I'll probably wave that wand at A and E first. <laughs> So
0: you'd make sure that your protocol was paid yeah. attention to at, that, at the front door of
1: the hospital. Exactly, because it just, it just, it's like, it just sets the pace for what happens next and how my, and how long I'm going to stay in that hospital sort of thing. Great, thanks, Nordia.
3: But well, I think also to have more of an integrated service Rather than just you know everyone providing their own care for the patient, but it's more integrated that that I can talk with one person about all my care. You know, then um, I don't know if they're making sense enough because my father was in in hospital for various yeah cancer. He had uh, kidney was malfunctioning and he had so he had to have a surgery on uh, remove his bladder, prostate, and his kidney. And and then we had to, we had to see so many different people. And sometimes it was so confusing and it was very dreadful for my father as well. And the worst thing was he couldn't speak the language as well. And so it was very hard. So I wish at that time that there could have been someone who could, from the the healthcare professional, who is like a professional interpreter, who could have done that. that Something small like that can make a difference in a patient's recovery and confidence, you know, when, you need to make them feel confident that what they're going through It sometimes the fear in itself can be a, a setback for your recovery. You know, so that, that, so the way you approach and the way you talk to the person uh, in a very integrated manner and, and this, or not to say, Oh, I'm just dealing with your kidney. You need to speak to the other person or the other one. You need to phone that person. And okay. then by the time you phone that person, y- y- your anxiety level increases you know so to hear someone to say uh, don't worry i will i will check on them and i will make sure that they give you a call and instead of pushing the burden on on the patient you know but to say don't worry about it i will make sure that i uh, get the information that you need and they'll come and speak to you
2: yeah i, I agree with what sandra's saying because what i'm getting from that is is the communication and transparency just just to add on to what sandra's saying because when I've had care where I'm I'm being seen about multiple different things like I am right now, what they have done is done joint clinics for me specifically, not just for me, but for like a lot of people like me with sickle cell and it changes everything because you're not coming in for more appointments. They come together in one room and you can discuss these different elements together in one room and they can talk to each other about what they think works for the patient and all that stuff and I think if there was a system like for example where the IT side of things were all linked across the UK mm. it would make it so much easier because a lot of the time they ask me when did you do this when did you do that now I'm, I'm in hospital <laughs> for MOTs all throughout the year so I don't even remember dates half the time or when's the last mm. time I had MRI for example so if they could just like pull it up and see like put my details in my NHS number and see all the things like listed together of what, you know, and they can click it and see the results. It'll just make it so much easier for them to communicate across institutes as well. I don't know if that's the right word for them, but yeah. But um, I think the my own input would be just seeing people as individuals, like just that equality, just um, not having, a, like you see someone and you have a, expectation of how they're going to behave or what you're going to get from them or you have or you see their condition and you assume that you're going to get a difficult person mm-hmm. I think if it was everybody was looked at as a blank slate it would help with the way we're treated it would help with the inequalities in health
0: that's really great it's a really great way to end it I think that's really important mm-hmm.
3: you know Beth you really started off by asking what good? Experiences we had, because most of the time, whenever you are, everybody is always talking about the negative things. Is so a kind of you know, and we never think about the good services that we have had received. And I think that was really, really nice. And for me to go back, like when did this happen two thousand six. So how many years ago? You know, going back uh, and to remembering that good care that I had received it's really that's. Yeah, yeah, you just tweak it just triggers some memories. So yeah. Just, well, we,
0: could, we can learn a lot from good stuff as well as the bad yeah. stuff, can't we? I hope you enjoyed listening to the Point of Care Foundation podcast today. If you liked what you heard, please join us again next time when we'll be talking about humanising healthcare for people using mental health services. If you like our podcast, please do consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can also find our podcast on the Point of Care Foundation website, as well as on Spotify, Apple, Google and all the usual podcast platforms. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for listening and goodbye.